Uh, kia ora tato. I think we'll, we'll get going. Um, my name's Neil Atkinson. For those who don't know me, I'm Chief Historian here at Manatu Taonga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage. And I'm delighted to welcome everyone here today uh, to hear Tom Brooking talk about Richard Seddon. And we've got a, a big crowd and a few more people still turning up, so uh, hopefully we'll, we'll find some um, extra seats to squeeze everyone in. Um, now, now Tom will, um, I'm sure, uh, need, needs a little, little introduction to, for many of you here. Um, he is a professor of history at the University of Otago where he holds a personal chair um, and is the author of, of seven monographs including biographies of William Cargill and John McKenzie, one of Seddon's leading lieutenants, as well as five edited and co-authored books and numerous um, articles. Um, he specialises in New Zealand rural and environmental history, political history and New Zealand Scottish links. And, uh, Tom's most recent book, as I'm, I'm sure people will be well aware, is this uh, biography of Richard Seddon, King of God's Own, about which he, is, of course, is the subject of today's, today's talk. Uh, now, published in 2014, this book was uh, the joint winner of the Ernest Scott Prize for the best book published in, on Australian and New Zealand history that year. Um, and it has, uh, it has a certain sort of solidity and uh, sturdy feel to it, which I think is befit befitting its, uh, its subject. Um, but while, while Seddon's place uh, as one of New Zealand's greatest prime ministers uh, is, is well established, he has, um, as, as Tom, Tom explains, often uh, suffered from being seen in a rather one-dimensional uh, light and being uh, caricatured often as uh, an anti-intellectual populist, uh, a ruthless pragmatist, uh, an anti-Chinese bigot, a misogynist who opposed women's suffrage, and an ardent imperialist. So what, um, apart from that, it's all pretty good, but um, what, what, what Tom has, uh, has, has achieved with this book is, um, is very much to provide a much more rounded portrait of, of Seddon, um, recognising uh, that this was a leader who, uh, despite the, the emphasis on pragmatism, had a, a clear vision for the, uh, the society that he was ruling over, and importantly, um, placing him in the in the context of this fascinating period in New Zealand history in the 18, from the 1880s, 90s and, and early 2000s, which he, he very much dominated. So Tom's going to talk for about uh, 45 minutes and we'll have um, some time for questions. Okay, thanks Tom. Well thank you for inviting me up here, it's always nice to come to Wellington, you got me out of two staff meetings, and and I managed to have a very exciting landing as well, just to, to add to the thrill of the day. Uh, of course, it is a big book. As Eric Olsen said when launching it in Dunedin, you know, this is a, it's a big fat book about a big fat man, and I think that that's, that's true, and if nothing else, you can use it for weightlifting, you know, so it's a bit heavy to read in bed, which, which is a problem. I admit, but then you go, you can't, you can't have everything in life. Okay, now I meant to start with a wonderful image from a cartoon of 1899 of King Dick. It actually shows him wearing a crown with Richard I on it. But it dropped off because, of course, I work on Mac and everything else is on PC. So it disappeared. So you'll forgive me for not having that wonderful image. But anyway, where we go. Uh, just to remind you that he was the most dominant politician in our history, you know, winning five elections in a row, four of them with absolute majorities. No one else has got close to that so far. <laughs> uh, I'll come back to that point a little later. 
And it's, you know, it was argued by an American political scientist many years ago called Jack Nagel. That's because he, he was an heresthete. And that just basically means he dominated a very simple majoritarian system. And, you know, it's not surprising that he was able to do that. Well, I've disputed that. Obviously, in the book, that's far too simple an explanation. He was a colossus, not just because he was so heavy. And at his peak, he was about 24 stone, right? Much the same as David Longy. Uh, but he was six foot, so he, he had slightly more height than, than David did, although similar size. Uh, and there's no doubt the myth has waned away since the, the 1970s, and yet, and yet, and yet, as I point out in the book, uh, this is a man that always wins any kind of poll carried out by political scientists as our greatest Prime Minister, still. And that's remarkable because we don't teach much New Zealand history in schools. Or if we do, only about 7 or 8% of the kids do it. Uh, there hasn't been a major documentary on him. I'm looking at uh, putting that to rights with an Australian filmmaker. Uh, well, a New Zealand filmmaker based in Australia. And uh, But despite all that, he keeps coming out, you know, top. And part of, part of it is this, this idea of him as King Dick, you know. It's, it's such a playful title. Just think about it for a moment. You know, Uncrowned King of Lancashire is sort of implicit in it. But... Here he was hobnobbing with the great and the good of the empire, this sort of ordinary bloke from the west coast, and I think uh, New Zealanders enjoyed the joke, and that's essentially what it is. It's, it's a little playful idea. Okay. All right, so how to write a book about such a person. Right, the first thing, what was going to be different about my approach? Remember, Burden's book was written in 1955. Okay, and in a kind of style which would be incomprehensible to many modern readers. It's got lots of nice purple prose, but it's not an easy read to the modern uh, reader, I, w I don't think. Uh, it's still useful, but, and it wasn't a bad book by the standards of the time, but nevertheless, you know, we needed to do a number of other things. So one of the things I tried to do was to, to visit places in Britain, Australia, and the West Coast where the semi-invalided uh, burden couldn't travel, although my travel budget didn't allow me to go entirely around the Pacific Islands, nor to travel across the United States by train, uh, and nor to travel on luxury liner from New York uh, to London, as he did at least twice. So, you know, I, I got to some of the places said and went, and I didn't get to South Africa either, which he charged through, I think I say in the book, like a, a rhino in attack mode. Okay. <laughs> The second thing is I wanted to add a, a much more critical Murray perspective. Uh, and uh, Lockie Patterson did help me a lot with, with Murray newspapers, but there's a lot more work to be done in this area uh, using the growing uh, iwi archives around the place, which are not only oral but increasingly written as well. So I'm hoping that some younger Murray scholars might take up that challenge, and especially that someone writes a biography of Timmy Carroll, because Sir James Carroll is so important and we desperately need... Uh, you know, a, a lot more about him. And speaking of whom, uh, this is the only photograph we know of that shows Seddon smiling that Judy Binney found when the young Tuhoi Rangatira came down uh, to Wellington in 1895 to sort out a deal with the government. And it's spontaneous. You can see Carol featuring on the side uh, there. And, uh, of course, it's not surprising he didn't smile off. Just, you, I bet you you couldn't smile if you had to sit still for 20 minutes in front of a camera. Uh, and also if you had bad teeth, uh, as he did, like 98% of New Zealanders of the day. So uh, it's, it's not surprising he didn't smile much. But there you go. This is the one occasion in which we actually see him smiling at the camera. 
The third thing I wanted to do was to unpack um, apocryphal anecdotes. That's one of my favourite old historians is a man called Daniel J. Boston. And he's written, wrote three wonderful books about American history. And uh, he came up with that little phrase. Uh, and, you know, so I tried to incorporate all these stories throughout the book. The one, for example, that I've got there is about Seddon actually managing to win over people in Ross, where he wasn't very popular, uh, during the 1890 election by pretending to be the opposition candidate, Joe Grimmond, until, <laughs> until he finally had got his cover blown. And the woman was so impressed by him that she ensured that, that her husband and everybody else voted for him. So it's stories like that that, that catch this magnificent uh, politician at work on the hustings, where he was happiest, you know, playing the crowd like a piano. He said, but that's not quite right because he actually used that phrase when he suppressed the shopkeepers' rebellion, of all things, in Wellington uh, in 1904. But this is a 905 election in the Y Rapper. But, you know, he was happiest when he was on the hustings. I wanted to incorporate two generations of scholarship. I won't bore you with all this, but look, you know, there's so much gone on since uh, Burden and Labour and Social History on wealth, Jim McAloon's work on high politics, uh, on women, uh, on Māori, on welfare, and lots of other biographies. Although the problem remained, and this is a point that Brian Easton sitting back there made to me when I first started on this project, he said one of the problems is too many people written about Seddon have been a bit snobbish. And it was certainly true of Burden, uh, and I think it's true of a lot of other people, including David Hamer and my old professor Bill Oliver, even to a point. The only major historian he wasn't snobbish about Seddon was Sinclair. So in many ways, my Seddon's closer to Keith's version than just about anybody else's. And it may have something to do with the fact that Keith, you know, was the son of a wharfie, uh, whereas most of these other people thought they were some sort of intellectual and came from sort of middle, upper middle class backgrounds. Uh, but anyway, that's something I tried hard to avoid. And then there's a whole rural environmental dimension, the imperial dimension, which is decidedly ancient in the case of New Zealand. Uh, and then I tried to liven it up by hooking it back into work done mainly in the 50s and 60s, a little bit in the 70s, uh, on British work on popular liberalism and the so-called new imperial history, which, by the way, is decidedly middle-aged, but there it is. So I tried to reconnect those two historiographies in writing the book. And of course, I wanted to highlight the remarkable women in his life. Uh, his mother, Jane Lindsay, his sister, Phoebe, his wife, Louisa Jane, and his six amazing obstreperous daughters, or at least five obstreperous daughters. Three of them more obstreperous than the others. I'll come back to them in a minute. But there's his dad and his mum. Uh, that's Jane Lindsay, who was a Scot, right? So Seddon's half Scottish. And not only that, she was a primitive Methodist. Right? Now, when I talked to the Reverend John Sinclair about this in Dunedin, he said, they're a rare breed. <laughs> uh, even though John's a New Zealander, he still talks with a Scottish accent. Um, and uh, indeed they were, but that gave him links into the chapel, which is quite interesting. But his father was a mainstream Anglican, as would Richard John B. And there's a house he grew up in, a very sturdy schoolhouse, and just makes the point that he came from the lower middle classes, right? Not from the working class. Uh, a bit like balance, I suppose, in a way, and even Jock McKenzie to an extent. So it's important to remember that uh, about him. And there is his, well, his tribe, really. Uh, 
the most amazing of the daughters uh, on this side, perhaps the most remarkable of them all is Mary Stewart, who ended up being his personal secretary uh, when he went off to the coronation of Edward the Seventh in 1902. Uh, next to her is Phoebe, who married Catherine Mansfield's uncle. Okay, which is an interesting sort of connection. Frank Dyer. Uh, there's a quiet a Louis beside, but God bless her, she left behind a diary of her trip around the world in 1897 that enabled me to lighten up those chapters on imperialism at critical points. Uh, and next to her is, is Jeannie, who was the oldest of the girls who married uh, Canon Bean of Addington and Christchurch and notoriously went on to produce five uh, wild daughters in the 1920s who were known as the five disgraces of Christchurch. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and the one in the middle who's sort of got a bit lost in the, in the book binding there is, is May, of course, who goes on to become the scourge of the Wellington City Council as May Gilmer uh, and is a remarkable woman in her own right who reintroduces Arbor Day. So they're a really interesting bunch and, of course, his stalwart wife, Louisa, held the whole thing together, uh, looking after all his political concerns when he was away in Parliament on the coast in Kamara and Hokitika. All right, so what I tried to do was to understand Seddon in his own terms, uh, to look at his liberalism carefully. Remember, he wasn't a socialist. He talked about being a humanitarian. He had socialistic moments, but uh, I was trying to get past this idea that New Zealand history was all about the triumph of the welfare state in 1938. I think we have to completely rethink that. And Thomas Piketty's book, I've almost finished it, uh, is, is helping me understand um, this point. And that is that the relative equality we had between the 1930s and 1970s is aberrant historically. Uh, most times capitalist societies before that and subsequently have been rather unequal. And yet New Zealand's slightly different in that under Seddon's leadership, New Zealand managed to, to get started on that path towards greater equality well before most places. So I'm trying to break the idea that it all happens with labour. It didn't. And to be fair to them, William Massey and Gordon Coates in between also moved New Zealand along that particular track. So uh, that's why I've argued that, that he, he's more than a populist. He, was a, he had a coherent political philosophy, which we could call roughly popular liberal. Okay, so the key questions I tried to answer were, why was he so popular? And I'll get back to these, I promise, eventually. How was his rise related to deeper economic, social and cultural changes in New Zealand? And how is this New Zealand story related to developments in other parts of the empire and indeed the United States? Okay, well, there's a lot gone on in my subject since I started teaching at Otago in 1973 um, and, and properly since 1978. And the second most recent turn, I hate that phrase really, but is the cultural turn. Okay, the latest one, by the way, is a maritime turn. Watch out for that. It's going to force us to rethink New Zealand history quite a bit, you know, to put ships and shipping and, and, and the sea into the story more. But the cultural turn uh, basically is all about, you know, taking culture seriously, and which is obviously a sensible thing to do if we're going to get on with anybody else in this world. Uh, and so uh, I, I tried to break the whole thing down into, whoops, three component parts by looking more carefully in industrial Lancashire, St Helens, uh, in the period that he lived there, born 
1845, just remind you a year after Ingalls wrote that amazing description of the terrible slums of Salford and Manchester. And then to look at the raw pre-industrial frontier gold mining world of Victoria and the West Coast, you know, the, the world of the luminaries, if you like. And then to look more carefully at the emergence of a vigorous colonial democracy over the rest of his life, particularly when he's in Parliament. So these are the sort of places he lived, you know, you can probably work out which is which, but the, the, the tidiest looking place is Melbourne or Smelbourne, as it was known when he lived there. Uh, and across from it, of course, is Bendigo, which is a major gold mining centre. Uh, down the bottom we've got Kumara and Hagatiga. Uh, Hagatiga, that's a picture from 1865, about the time that luminaries are set. If you take yourself to Hagatiga these days, of course, the Seddon will take you on a tour of the luminaries' hotels. Right? This is a guy called David Verrill, who impersonates Seddon. looks very much like him, at least with a couple of pillows on board. The only trouble is he has a London accent. <laughs> okay. All right. So I wanted to pay particular attention to the British background, its geographical, familial, community, cultural, political components. And that's what I tried to do in the book by drawing on this so-called new British political history that pays a lot more attention to things like popular culture and the use of language. And, of course, one of the most amazing things Seddon used to do when he was performing, and that's what he did live, was when he finished the speech, which could go on up to three hours, he then sang for you know, several more minutes popular songs, basically music hall songs. So uh, that drove Sir John Hall crazy, but <laughs> most New Zealand voters loved it. And uh, this sort of whole business was alerted to me by Jed Martin a long time ago, actually, when he visited my university in 1984 by telling us about the story of the Tichborne claimant, in which Sir Roger, that's him at the top, was lost, presumed drowned at sea, and this man called Arthur Orton, or he may have been someone else, we're now beginning to think, from Cromwell of all places, rather than from Victoria, uh, claimed to be the true Tichborne claimant. Now clearly there's a problem here, and you know he eventually was done for perjury and, and stuck in jail. but. Uh, he was hugely popular and all sorts of people defended him, you know. And Jed suggested that Seddon looked a bit like this fellow. Uh, so, you know, not Sir Roger Tichborne, uh, but basically uh, like Arthur Orton. And there's a couple of other historians who have written about this, Ryan McWilliams and David Wayne Thomas, and they talk about this. Uh, McWilliams in terms of sort of class kind of warfare, getting back at the aristocracy. Thomas More in terms of kind of cultural war. And either way, Seddon starts to make more sense. So I think there's something in the idea. I wouldn't want to push it too hard. The geography, all right. Oh, I apologise for that weird entry there, but you know, th this has sort of evolved, this PowerPoint, over many years, and I tried different things at different times. Anyway. Just to remind you a bit more about St Helens, uh, it's dominated, it's different from most Lancastrian towns. It's not a mill town. There's no cotton milling going on there, and it's not a coal mining town, okay? So that makes it a very different place than most parts of Lancashire. It's dominated by Pilkington's huge glass factory, still there, which was the biggest in the world for many years, and also had all kinds of uh, awkward chemical uh, activities going on, basically the production of alkalis. So it was a classic blackland landscape, a, a dirty, horrid place. It's not surprising he wanted to leave it. Uh, 
and but he actually worked in, in Dalglish's, notice how that's spelt, uh, foundry. And then he goes on to the Vauxhall Works and Foundry in Liverpool. And Manchester sits to the east, which is this primal industrial kind of place, as Engels reminded us, and the condition of the working classes in England. And Liverpool's to the west, uh, trading port gateway to to Empire and the island and he noticed all these ships going in and out and it's one thing that tempted him to leave and go to the Victorian gold rushes. But of course the other reason for that was several of his relatives had already done it and on top of that the young men of St Helens tended to go to those Victorian gold rushes. And that's what it looked like about the time he'd left. Not surprising he wanted to get out in a way. And you've got to remember that on the other side of St Helens, of course near where he lived, was a giant great estate which was owned by the Earls of Derby. Uh, and there he wandered around and had a great time because it had the largest menagerie in Britain at the time. Uh, and it was really rather a lovely piece of open green countryside. Uh, and in a way, like many New Zealand migrants, I think he was trying to escape over rapid urbanisation and come to a place that was a bit more open and in those days clean and green apart from all the fires and bush. Okay, uh, and there's Liverpool. Uh, about the time he left, you can see that it's a major port that already has some uh, glorious buildings, but also lots of notorious slums. It was a rough, tough place, same as St Helens, and that's where a lot of his masculinist attitudes come from. Remember, St Helens is famous as a rugby league town, and before that, it was a rugby town, all right? They don't play uh, association football there. It's not a soccer town, and this is a key to understanding why Seddon's so interested in things like wrestling and boxing and was the only way you survived in St Helens as a young man, which was very much male-dominated, unlike the coal mining uh, towns where women were so much more powerful because it was they who bathed and fed their husbands when they came home from the shift. Quite a different world. All right, so on the familiar side of things, don't forget that he's, like myself and many others, he was the son of two school teachers, not one. So therefore he comes from the lower middle class. His father, important key to his success, Broad Church of England. And his Anglicanism is important. If you don't believe me, take yourself into St Paul's and open your eyes. Old St Paul's, I mean. And you'll be surprised what you find there. Seddon's all over it. His Scottish mother, though, uh, was, you know, as I said, she was a this strange sort of odd character, uh, a, a Scottish Methodist, and uh, who gave him links to Burns and to the chapel, both of which were important, and from this comes a, a sense of democracy. There's also farming in his family. His grandfather was a farmer, and he used to go and visit his grandfather at Eccleston, and that's where he first got a job, working with his granddad. His granddad, though, was glad to see the back of him. Judging by stories, he was just a confounded nuisance on the farm. But I see this as important because it enabled him to, to negotiate pre-industrial and industrial worlds and rural and urban worlds, which is so important uh, in terms of his success here. And another interesting thing he did, he reassembled his entire family on the West Coast, more or less. So he brought out his older sister Phoebe, who married uh, William Cunliffe, an engineer, and they had 13 children and they moved to Greymouth. And his younger sister Mary went to Westport, a guy called George Mackay, and had 18 children. Right, to go with Seddon's nine, not surprising that there was an awful lot of them around. So this sort of runs counter to the Miles Fairburn hypothesis of atomisation somehow or another. <laughs> All right, 
Now, uh, what about community popular politics? These two guys were particularly helpful in, in, in assisting me with this. Eugenio Biagini, uh, and I will be spending my last RSL working with him at Cambridge next year. And Patrick Joyce and Visions of the People. Basically, trying to understand what the so-called subaltern classes uh, chose the Liberals ahead of Labour for a long time. Uh, and Joyce particularly is helpful in looking at Lancashire. And, and there's, they sort of explain this in populist kind of terms and moving away from an E.P. Thompson type, more Marxist class analysis and trying to understand this difference. Of course, uh, what's said and read is quite consistent with popular liberalism. And so it's very moralistic kind of thing. Key text, what are they? The Bible and Pilgrim's Progress. And it's all about fairness even more than liberty. It's about liberty as well, but especially about fairness. Uh, it's all about civilising capitalism, reforming things, not worrying about revolution. And the key text was written by that man down there, Thomas Babington Macaulay, The History of England, which is all about moral advance brought about through constitutional reform. And that's what these jokers concentrate on. Of course, behind it is Chartism, with this constitutional approach to reform, solving problems, one man, one vote, all that kind of thing. Now, Chartism runs out of steam in 1848, yeah, but the ideas are around and then they will return on the goldfields of New Zealand and Australia. And of course, like all the other leading New Zealand Liberals, he was quite interested in Mill and his ideas about uh, purchasing back land slowly, but he's quite pro-leasehold most of his life. He wobbles a bit later on. But on the other hand, what he rejected from Mill was this idea that you should stop growth. He's committed to development. Unlike Reeves, unlike Balance, he's quite different in that respect. And of course, initially, he's pretty indifferent about women's suffrage. But he's not opposed to it because he's a misogynist, rather because he was fearful of the unknown. And Balance and Stout and all the rest of them felt exactly the same way, even Reeves, despite the fact that their wives were ardent feminists and giving them hell at home, uh, they were quite worried about this kind of thing. Uh, and arguably, Seddon's daughters also gave him hell at home, which is one reason why he changed so quickly once women did get the vote. Uh, but there's also this, this this whole business of equality is only part of the story. There's a whole emphasis upon self-improvement, self-reliance, independence and elevation. And the key text here is written by Samuel Smiles, uh, and it's all over uh, the Athenaeums and libraries of the goldfields. It's the book most taken out in the Lawrence Athenaeum, right? For example, uh, in the 1860s and 70s. So that's very much part of, of what Seddon's on about. But of course, on the goldfields, there's this masculine side of things uh, going on as well. And then there's the importance of dialect. Now, Seddon had a reasonably soft accent, but you wouldn't think that if you read the newspaper accounts. Of course, he sounded terrible to anybody from the south of Britain. But in fact, the St Helens voice is very soft compared with either Liverpool's or Manchester's. So he wouldn't have sounded like any of the Beatles, nor would he have sounded like people from Corro Street. So it's a much softer voice than that. And uh, most of the complaints tell us more about people's snobbishness and oral intolerance than they do about his voice at all. And of course, uh, He's much influenced by people like Burns and Oliver Goldsmith. You know, maybe the most important single poem for a lot of these people was the diverted, deserted village, which of course is referenced in Thomas Hardy's, you know, this new movie of Far From The Madding Crowd, 
Where's it come from? This poem. All right. And uh, all, the reason I stuck this stuff up is this glorification of the yeoman ideal, the fact that Seddon supports Jock McKenzie's redistribution or attempt to redistribute the land. Uh, and there's a support for this from industrial workers in the cities, not just in the countryside. And there's also this idealising of the people. He talked about that a lot. So did many of the liberal leaders. And this is putting the nation above class. And, and the more recent uh, writing about this in Britain from Linda Colley in 1992 to the books by people like Catherine Hall uh, has, has reinforced this point. And then, of course, you know, it might seem daffy to try and compare Seddon and Gladstone, but Seddon's hero was Gladstone. Uh, even though, you know, he's extremely wealthy, he starts life as a Tory, flip-flops the Liberals, uh, basically believes in laissez-faire till the end of his days, but, but he changes the style of British politics in the late 1860s and through the 1870s and 80s, orchestrating mass meetings and operating as a very powerful executive politician, as of course would Seddon. It's very moralistic and God-fearing, believe it or not, was Seddon. Uh, they're both constitutional monarchists. There's no republicanism anywhere in Seddon, even though he was in the Victorian gold rushes where it's quite powerful. It's sort of, you know, counter-trend. Uh, he doesn't go for that at all. One of their favourite novelists, Wallace Scott, and is certainly is very much in that sort of mode. Uh, and he was a very frugal chancellor. The Exchequer Justice Seddon would be a frugal colonial treasurer. Remember that he's colonial treasurer from 1895 to 1906. It's a long time to be the Minister of Finance as well as the Prime Minister in modern parlance. Uh, and that's because of Joe Ward you know, going bankrupt and then having to go out of the house and come back in again. And towards the end, Gladstone got slightly strange. He got into things like, as, as he became the people's William, he started chopping down trees and doing it so to, to show how athletic and strong physically he was. Well, Seddon did the same thing by wrestling you know, professionals who came around to make their money usually beating them. In fact, the city only ever lost one wrestling match, and that was because the other guy cheated, all right, because his foot was held down by his brother, uh, who confessed this on his deathbed, all right. Uh, and, you know, the cartoon images, the great helmsman, you see that idea coming out in both cartoons of, of uh, Gladstone and Seddon. But on the other hand, you know, we can't push the comparison too, too hard because... Gladstone is much more committed to free trade, to the minimum state, and he's weary of empire and war, even though he got involved in quite a lot of those. And I've just done a, a little paper trying to understand uh, Seddon's friendship with this other bloke so, who's so different from Gladstone, you know. There he is, Joe Chamberlain, the dandy, wealthy man from, you know, whose family made a fortune out of making screws of all things. Uh, but he's not an aristocrat and he's, he's not educated at Oxbridge either. Uh, and uh, they became great supporters basically because they both believed in old age pensions and the tariff. It suited both their purposes. That's really why they became allies. But uh, there is that popular conservative tradition in Lancashire emphasising masculine themes of hard drinking, sport, playing, fun loving style. So, you know, you start to put these things together, the friendship makes some sense, if not a hell of a lot. Uh, and these two guys also were very emphatic about one thing, that the importance of the ancient unwritten constitution, the opposition to continental style despotism. They didn't want these things to happen. But 
Seddon is, is obviously not going to change sides like Chamberlain did, and he wanted a balance between liberty and fairness. So he's more like Chamberlain um, than the new Liberals. He's, he's nowhere near as radical as some like Green or Hobson. So there you go. He's as much a hybrid as a New Zealand landscape, right? That's the sort of conclusion I reached. But unless we know about the British background, we'll never be able to read the cartoons around him either because they reference all sorts of things that go deep back into British political history. So why so popular? How am I going? All right. Yeah, OK. Right. I'm, I'm, you can sort of see an, an answer emerging, I think. But basically, it's because he reflects the, the modestly, and I stress that word modest, egalitarian and democratic hopes and aspirations of his times. He also opposed obvious enemies like great estate owners, personified the values of his era, and shared the fears and prejudices of his contemporaries. And I don't think any New Zealand politician has been as in tune with electorate, except maybe the current incumbent, which I don't understand at all. So. Uh, trying to understand Seddon's popularity, you know, it was, hasn't been easy, and I suggest historians in 100 years' time looking back at John Key may struggle for the same reason. But whatever, he was uncannily in tune with the electorate. And he built on these older traditions that he encountered everywhere he went, particularly on the gold rushes. And it was, hit me when I was in Melbourne the other week, and I saw this uh, memorial to the three eights. It's got eight, eight, eight on it. And that's what this stuff's all about, really. One man, one vote. Um, and it's about the eight-hour day, eight shillings a day, eight hours leisure, you know. So a balance between work, play, and sleep. Simple stuff, but uh, had huge popularity. And he was able to, you know, carry out many of those sorts of reforms that, that enabled New Zealand to become that kind of a society, even giving people time off in the weekends, you know. So we had much more limited shopping hours than we do today, for example. Uh, as for the economic stuff, yeah, sure, he was lucky, but I argue that he made the most of his luck uh, and he stood behind Mackenzie. He stood behind Ward bringing in credit for farmers. And he did save the BNZ. It nearly went down with a lot of complex manoeuvring, but he did it, and he's a careful manager of the economy. He actually used to send off uh, to the good and great of Britain in the early 1900s his annual budget to show that the country was in surplus and along with that came usually a pair of paradise ducks uh, and some New Zealand plants. Right? So Mrs Jenny Churchill got uh, the present of paradise ducks but unfortunately one had died so she wrote back to tell on this but I thought a great retirement project would be going around the great houses of Britain seeing how many pairs of paradise ducks I can find <laughs> and also how many New Zealand plants and there's certainly plenty of those. Uh, and there's this broad support for the, the, the notion of helping people to help themselves. All right, well, I'm, I'm running out of time, but I think the top point here is, is huge and really important and one that's been underplayed by New Zealand historians, and that is a high-level literacy. You know, this is the most literate society on the planet, even slightly more literate than Australia, uh, dare I say, and uh, that makes political engagement so much easier. You know, we had such a high distribution of newspapers and this is so easy to check out now because so many of them are available online and you can just pop in there and you'll see straight away how much coverage was given to politics at the time. And although you know, a lot of those papers are very anti-liberal, I think the uh, population by and large was well enough read to see through the cant of, of some of those papers. Uh, and all those other things about national identity, broad low church Anglicanism, very important. 
And he also is in tune with the, the emerging patterns of modernisation that Eric Olson's revealed in his work on, on Cavisham as well. But maybe the second point's other interesting one that's coming from my reading of Piketty, and that is uh, that New Zealand was further down the road towards greater equality than most places by the time he dies in 1906. Just remind you, if he'd lived a bit longer, we probably would have had contributory superannuation back then. Imagine how much better off we'd be if that had happened. But anyway, that's counterfactual. Uh, and I've got a whole lot of complicated stuff here about, you know, part of the, obviously it's part of the British imperial story and some of the things that he did that seemed so awkward to us uh, were very popular at the time because he was taking advantage of membership of the greatest trading bloc the world had ever seen. Uh, and I think maybe the other key thing there's that third point. The people who came in, particularly the Frenchmen like Seyfried and Matan, uh, Twain and Davitt, not so much not so much the English who were a bit snooty about the place, they still treat us as a colony, but the French and the Americans and the Irishmen all recognised that Australia and New Zealand were committing themselves to progressive policies and building utopias for white men and women to a lesser, ext a lesser extent. Uh, so the overall thing though is that he ends up providing a fairer society or building a fairer society rather than uh, a freer one necessarily. So yeah, he's a guy that changes the style and tone of New Zealand politics irrevocably. So all successful prime ministers thereafter uh, had to be like him, work an 18 hour day, be accessible, possess the common touch, you know, support the All Blacks. Um, as said and did quite blatantly in 1905-06, became known as the Minister of Football and was on the boat, leaping about, despite his 24 stone and whatever it was, uh, when the All Blacks arrived back in 906 in Auckland. Uh, and, you know, it's all about the centre. So, progressive enough to, to keep those who want to see some change happy, but not too radical, to keep the moderates happy. So he gets the broadest base of, of support are probably in our history, running across urban, suburban, small town and rural New Zealand. Right? He had the support of small farmers, if not of bigger ones. Uh, and I think he had a broader base of support than any politician before or since. And he was, after all, as his original hagiographer James Drummond pointed out, the people's servant as much uh, as a dictator. So his legacy then is champion of rough equality, uh, and he becomes more humanitarian, sliding gently leftwards by 1903 towards something like Christian socialism. So I basically argue that he's a builder uh, as well as a maintenance man. And these are the sort of quick legacies and images I'll leave with you. You know, the one that we know best, but there he is shown basically as a democratic leader. Uh, here's something else that he really believed in families in Helen's hospitals. Uh, he was a pro-natalist, but not only that, he wanted a better deal for working class mums and uh, for children. And here's a picture of one of those hospitals early on with, uh, I got this a little bit wrong in the book, I said they were Karatani nurses, they aren't, they're St Helens nurses. And uh, there they are bringing, you know, strong healthy children into the world uh, to make New Zealand into uh, an even more progressive kind of a country. These were hospitals for working class mums and they were feminine spaces, right? Men weren't allowed near them except in 
case of emergency, and his daughters would fight that fight in the 1920s and 30s and lose it. But the fact they fought it at all is pretty interesting. Christchurch Tech. All right. He was a great believer in technical education, and of course, the most important thing he did in many ways was to open up New Zealand education to all academically able children, 903, and he's a man who rams that chain through, and so this is the kind of legacy that he would have liked above all else. But I'll leave with this image of him as a builder. The other side of the cartoon has Mackenzie on it, that's when he retires. But it, it basically you know, shows that he's not just a maintenance man, he's not just a hard man who got other people's legislation through. He did some things of importance himself. And uh, his achievements indeed turned out to be uh, rather greater than I'd ever imagined when I set out on this project. So there we are in 42 minutes. We've had a very <laughs> rapid traverse uh, through a very complex story. You can all now go and buy the book and <laughs> read it, you know, um, written in, in sort of um, a much more coherent way uh, with a somewhat complex structure. But there it is. So I hope you... Uh, I hope you enjoyed the book if you've already read it, and if you haven't, well, I hope you do, because I think that Seddon has a lot to teach the country at the moment, particularly as we're becoming less and less equal, more and more unequal. I think if we could bring him back, he'd be horrified at the things that are going on. Uh, and whether he's claimed by National or Labor, and they both claim him, because he is a centrist politician, I don't think he'd be very happy with the, the, the sort of trends that are, that are operating in New Zealand at the moment. And he certainly wanted to make New Zealand a lot more equal place than Victorian Britain, which wouldn't have been hard, because it was grossly unequal. But he did succeed in doing that, and we mustn't forget that. Uh, uh, and he you know, achieved an awful lot uh, in, in his time as Premier that perhaps most New Zealanders don't, don't realise. So we credit it all to Rees, we credit it all to Mackenzie perhaps in particular, but the man himself not only set up the beginnings of the welfare state, but also uh, started to bring the state more into play, and not that he ever wanted it to be too overwhelming. I mean, the tax levels that he operated for, for example, would be considered low by X standards. So it's, it's not about high tax, even though some people at the time complained about that. But it was more about bringing the state into play uh, in, in a balanced sort of way without overdoing it. It doesn't mean that he didn't have his faults. Yes, he was guilty of a lot of nepotism, and he believed in the spoils go to the winner. And Massey had an important job there to clean up the civil service. I, I don't think there's any argument about that. But uh, nevertheless, he basically wanted New Zealand to be a progressive country, that's why he introduced all of the stuff with the, the midwives in 1904, much to the embarrassment of the male politicians in the House, uh, because he wanted New Zealand to lead the world and have the lowest rate of infant mortality. Boy, you start thinking about those kind of things, you know, he was quite aspirational for the country, and I think we need to, to uh, maybe aspire to some of those kind of things. Again, given how small we are and how well-educated we are, we have the possibility to get back to maybe having between the third and fifth highest standard of living in the world uh, and also to lead the world in, in things like care of children, which is perhaps a good point to, to end on because one of my readers was the late John Angus as a commissioner for children. Uh, he got me interested as a granddad as well. I've got a lot more interested in this whole issue and I think that that was the other thing about Seddon is he did want a better deal for children and he would be horrified with a lot of the stuff that's going on with children in this country at the moment. Uh, uh, and, and, and you know, it doesn't matter 
what race or cultural elements are attached. He wanted a better deal for all New Zealand children, although, of course, he had a long way to go with Maori, it's true, but his relationship with them turned out to be a lot more complex than I ever imagined it would be, uh, because it already been pretty critical of his land purchasing policies elsewhere. But looking at that relationship, it was uh, a very complex one, but it needs a lot more work, I think, to, to untangle that. So, basically, a builder uh, whose efforts uh, perhaps deserve a bit more acknowledgement than they have so far received. Thank you very much. Tom, uh, thanks very much for the uh, talk. Very, very interesting about Seddon. Just a question I want to ask you. What do you think uh, Seddon's approach was to the military? In his time, of course, New Zealand troops went off to South Africa for the Boer War, and CMT came in a few years later. So w what would his thoughts be under his prime ministership? Did he encourage the military, or was he more of a hands-off sort of person when it came to that? Well, at one level, he, of course he encouraged them because he was something of a jingoist, and he, you know, New Zealand made a greater contribution to the Boer War per capita than, than anywhere else um, in the empire. Uh, because we're so small, I suppose, that's, that doesn't necessarily mean a heck of a lot, but but he certainly was a huge supporter of it. But, of course, he was a huge... It's, it's quite a complicated answer coming up. He was a huge supporter of that war because he wanted us to be seen as the most loyal dominion, well, what would become a dominion, the most loyal colony as we were then, within the British Empire, and because that would get us all sorts of trade advantages. And he was pushing New Zealand lamb, for example, as, as the food of the, you know, the British Army. And, of course, uh, they were sons of John Bull. They would only eat beef. So he didn't get very far with that particular strategy. But nevertheless, there, there was always a sort of nationalist intent in, 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 in those kind of activities. Uh, he wasn't a particularly efficient Minister of Defence. He meddled too much. But on the other hand, he did show genuine concern for New Zealand soldiers in the Boer War uh, and uh, was typical of his... He was a man of his time. We must remember that, so that this sort of militaristic thing that can seem a bit awkward to a lot of modern readers uh, was what was expected of, of a Premier, I guess, in those days. And he had to outdo the Australians, at least, which he succeeded in doing. So you've got all those sort of elements, you know, going on. He also, you know, didn't come out very well in terms of suppressing some criticism uh, made of the Boer War effort. Uh, but um, on the other hand, uh, he you know, use this as an opportunity to show New Zealand off to the world, including taking, uh, as, as he did in 1897, a Maori contingent with him. Uh, and this, and the, the one in 1902 is, is different from the 1897 one, which is basically dominated uh, by East Coast Iwi, um, as, as you would expect. But the one that goes in, Ngāti um, Kahangunu in particular, the one that goes in... 902 represent most major iwi. So, you know, he's trying to show us off as a bicultural place, uh, even though the reality may have been a wee bit different, but but it looked good, at least. Uh, and, yeah, so he, he's... Uh, on the other hand, he doesn't want to spend too much on the military, all right? So he gets into the, the dilemma that faces every New Zealand leader. If you're going to have an efficient military, how can you afford to pay for it? Because we're so small now, at, you know, 4.6 million... Imagine what it was like when we were less than a million people. We don't get to a million until 910. So, you know, it wasn't very affordable. And he, in his jingoistic moments, he talked about, 
you know, going like the Prussians and introducing some sort of compulsory military training, as happens in 909. But then he did the, the sums as colonial treasurer and backed off quite quickly and, uh, and decides that once the war was over, there's more important things to work on. So he, he's, he's a mixed bag there, and that's something different I tried to show in the book, is the sort of orthodoxy is that because of the Boer War, he becomes more and more conservative. But in fact, once the Boer War's over, he moves left again. And, and people have forgotten about all the things that happened in 903, 4 and 5. Uh, and there's a lot happens in there. So if he was going to do all those other things, like improving child health and maternal health, then he couldn't afford to spend too much on the military. So it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act. Yeah. Tom, one area you didn't talk about him was as a political manager. Totally. Brilliant. And, and, and can I just ask you to develop two things? One is his relationship with Cabinet. Seems to me the great Prime Ministers have been brilliant managers of men. Um, totally. Not quite sure about Helen Clark in this context, but time will tell. And the other thing was he actually, as I understand it, he and Balance built the first political party. And there's a sense in which, until Massey does the same, the dominance of the Liberals is unchallenged. Yeah, absolutely uh, a genius at managing men and Cabinet. The problem with that, of course, is Cabinet records for the period are more or less non-existent. Once you get to Massey, it changes and they become you know, readily available, which does make historian's job a lot easier. But by inference, uh, it's pretty clear that he dominated Cabinet more or less completely, which maybe was a weakness because it meant that, you know, he never really had a decent successor come through. I mean, Joe Ward was a competent politician, but not in the same league as Seddon. Uh, and you know, trying to find anyone else that could match him or fill his shoes is just about impossible. So there was a problem there. But in terms of organisation, Balance started to organise a proper modern-style party. Uh, Seddon basically used power personality to do the same thing through the 90s. But from 1899, he tries to set up a proper... A political extra parliamentary party organisation and follows the example of the British Liberals, uh, particularly um, some of the actually ideas that have been introduced much earlier by Joe Chamberlain and there is an effort to, to make the whole thing more systematic. He ran immediately into the huge old New Zealand problem, localism, which means that the Auckland mob didn't want to have a hell of a lot to do with the Wellington mob. Dunedin was its own person in Christchurch was completely idiosyncratic. So, and remember Christchurch was a radical city at this time, you know, it's not the conservative place we all think it is, it was quite radical. And uh, uh, he couldn't really control what was going on in Christchurch. Life sometimes got a bit difficult for him because he was from the west coast. So he didn't have linkages into the elites of Auckland, Wellington, Canterbury and Otago, but on the other hand that gave him an advantage. So. It depends how you look at these things. But he tried hard to, to, to get a much more tightly organised uh, party. He used caucus quite effectively to discipline people. Uh, and he just used sheer power of personality, though, to do that as well. So Massey would have to take uh, that whole process a few steps further. So arguably reform was the first truly modern party. Uh, the Liberals are sort of quasi-modern party. They don't get the whole way, and it's Massey that builds a party from the bottom up rather than the top down, and that's one reason why they become so successful, uh, you know, uh, 
from about 1908, nine onwards. Yep. How far did the uh, Pacific aspirations of uh, Seddon reflect New Zealand's general desire for, uh, you know, uh, uh, an empire of the Pacific, uh, particularly Samoa, etc.? Well, uh, yeah, it's been embarrassing, this part of the story. Uh, you know, it's, it's an inglorious story. But you can't just blame Seddon. Uh, Vogel wanted the same thing. Stout wanted the same thing. Gray wanted the same thing. So there was that older uh, tradition of wanting to have an empire in the Pacific or a sub-empire, whatever you want to call it. And, of course, his vision was ludicrously grand. It was never uh, going to come off. And it's you know, a slightly embarrassing story, really. Uh, it, and we didn't do a very good job on the Cooks uh, when, when he was in charge uh, and in Niue either. Um, but it's perhaps not quite as bad as people make out. And there was a degree of sense about it, coming back to the military question that was asked earlier, uh, in that if the Pacific was a British lake, we were obviously a lot safer. You know, what happened in 1914 was there was two German cruisers out there so that Massey had to call our boys back and had a very sleepless night because of their presence unknown out there in the Great Sea somewhere. Um, and so... His opposition to the Germans getting into Samoa, I think, made some kind of sense. Uh, as for the rest of it, it's whether the French or whoever is a bit over the top. The idea that he was going to muscle into Honolulu and Hawaii was even sillier. Uh, he, he actually got himself all the way uh, to the American president who told him in no uncertain terms that the Monroe Doctrine would apply in 1897, uh, and that was the end of that. But, you know, he, he thought big. <laughs> I think it's true to say, but uh, unfortunately, the, the sort of more negative aspects of, of his policies towards Māori uh, really played out in the Pacific. There's no equivalent to, to James Carroll to sort of moderate and mentor him in his activities in the Pacific. So it's, 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 it's an inglorious story, uh, a somewhat embarrassing one, but I think it's what most New Zealanders wanted, and it was an, an old desire that goes back well before Seddon. So he was kind of almost following a tradition and doing what he did.